I think you know there is a strong demand for some form of democratization of economic knowledge, and I think this can contribute to a, a democratization of of our economic structure as well. Nobody expected a 600-page book of economic history to take the world by storm. But that's what happened after Capital in the 21st Century was published in 2013. Within a year, it was the number one best-selling book on Amazon.com, having been translated into English, German, Spanish, and Chinese. And the book's author, Professor Thomas Piketty of the Paris School of Economics, had become something of a phenomenon himself. He was called a rock star economist, named the third most influential thinker by Politico last year, and even appeared on The Colbert Report. In early November of this year, Professor Piketty came to the University of Chicago for a day of intense debate and discussion. We sat down to talk about whether economists are wasting their time with too much math, why he thinks climate change is the next frontier of global inequality, and what the incredible response to his book has meant to the author. Well, this has been a terrific experience, you know, going all over the place in so many different countries. What, what to me, what has been the most uh, interesting uh, uh, aspect is the sort of very uh, uh, balanced uh, uh, distribution of uh, interest and uh, readers, uh, basically across the world. So you know, the, the English language edition was uh, was very uh, successful, but in the end, you know, it's uh, about one quarter of the world sells, you know, which are now over two million, and it's only half a million, uh, you know, in, in English language. So English language edition is important, of course, but, you know, the three quarters of the world, which is also important in, in China, in Brazil, in Europe, and in three times more than the English language shell. So that's something which I think shows that the issue of inequality, you know, every country has its own uh, complicated relation and history with inequality. And uh, I, I take the success of the book as, as, you know, as illustration for the fact that in many different countries and historical contexts, uh, many people outside professional economists, you know, are tired to hear that this is too complicated for them and are interested, you know, in books that sort of help us to make their own mind about these important issues and income, wealth, inequality. Was that, was that a real goal for you in, in writing this? Yes, it was. It was a goal. It's not only to make it accessible. It's also because I deeply believe that you know I, I view my myself as a social scientist more than as an economist or uh, an historian. You know, I think the boundaries between the different social sciences are much less clear than what economists uh, sometimes try to pretend. And I also think that the language of the social sciences, broadly speaking is not the only language to address inequality. I think literary language, you know, the way novelists in particular are able to talk about the consequences of money in the life of people, uh, be it in uh, Balzac, Jane Austen, or in more contemporary literature, like, you know, when Carlos Fuentes talks about capitalism in Mexico. You know, I think writers have a, have a very powerful way to express uh, the consequences of inequality and money, which... Social scientists like me, you know, will never have this uh, this kind of, of power. But I think the language that we use is complementary to, you know, more literary language. And so from the beginning of my book, right from the introduction, I try to show that when I look at wealth in the 19th century, uh, uh, you know, it resonates with the way uh, uh, novelists talk about wealth at the time, the same today. 
So it's it's uh, it's it's it has been yeah it, to me it has been a motivation in writing this book it has been also to try to answer some of the questions that are somehow asked in this in some of these uh, in these novels. What's an example of one of those questions? Like, you know, in, so in, in, in the 19th century literature uh, in France, but also in Britain, also in the US, you know, mon money is everywhere. Wealth is everywhere. And, and in particular in, in Balzac, you have this uh, famous uh, uh, speech uh, in, uh, in this novel called Le Père Goriot, where Rastignac, who is a young uh, and ambitious law student in Paris in 1820, but, you know, he could be an ambitious uh, law student in Chicago in, uh, in, in, in 2000. And 15, and he meets this very cynical character uh, called Vautrin, who basically tells him that you know if he wants to get rich in life, uh, you know, getting his degree is not really going to get him anywhere, and, and the best way to reach high living standards is to uh, marry with someone with a lot of wealth. And for a long time, I was asking myself, okay, was it really true at that time, or is it just that Balzac was obsessed with? Uh, Money, you know, he had he himself had a lot of debt, and he was writing novels all the time to repay his debt. So, was, or was it really like this at the time? And most importantly, what makes this change over time? What wh wh why is it that in different countries, in different centuries, the relative importance of uh, education, labor income on the one hand, and inherited wealth on the other hand? Why, why is this changing over time? And part of the answer is in uh, chapter uh, 11 of my book, which I strongly uh, advise you to read, where I have a graph called Rastignac Dilemma, where I compare for different generations born between 1800 and today, how uh, does it uh, uh, compare to reach a top 1% job or top 10% job in terms of living standards and getting a top 10% spouse or top 1% spouse in terms of family inherited wealth. And I, I compare these different situations over time, and that's, that was strongly motivated by, uh, by, by my reading of, of Balzac. Mm -hmm. um, for those who haven't read the book yet, it's predicated on this idea that we're heading back into levels of inequality last seen in the Gilded Age. So walk me through why that's happening? Well, first, let me make clear that there are contradictory evolutions uh, going on. And, I, you know, I certainly don't believe in sort of deterministic forces that should always push toward more and more inequality or toward more and more equality. You know, I, I think there are different possible futures, different possible trajectories, depending on the institutions, the education systems, the tax systems, the la labor. Uh, there are many different forces going on. Generally speaking, Maybe one of the most striking findings when you put together all this historical data uh, on income and wealth, this is the, the largest existing historical database on income and wealth inequalities that we've been collecting with over uh, 30 scholars from, from several dozen countries. Probably How do you collect that? So some of it is uh, actually still there in, in uh, paper format in inheritance archives. So you can keep track of uh, how much uh, uh, wealth was transferred at death. And so we collected this data. This is much easier today with... Uh, Uh, you know, modern information technology to uh, to uh, to get uh, electronic uh, data out of this uh, paper file. So this is something that was impossible to do even 10 or 20 years ago. There's also a lot of, of data uh, from uh, income tax or from property register that was actually already tabulated by tax administration uh, 100 years ago and 50 years ago. And, and the data was just sitting there in old statistical publication. 
and this was not used before in a systematic manner. I think largely because of uh, excessive uh, uh, boundaries between disciplines. So, you know, basically this data was viewed as too historical by economists and too economic by historians. So no nobody was really doing it. And so that's uh, the really new part that we've been doing. And this is continuing. You know, I should say the, the book is like the, the picture of what we know at a given point in time. But we still know too little and we will keep updating the data. If you go to the World Top Income Database website, which you can easily find online, you will see that there are now more countries than I had at the time of the book, in particular more emerging countries. That's, uh, you know, that's an ongoing process and, and you know, we'll be, hopefully we will know more in five or ten years than we know now. And then so what are you doing with this information? Well, then we, you know, we try, there's a very tedious uh, statistical work to try to put it in a format that can be compared between countries, compared over time. One of the findings that we, that we get is that if you look at the evolution of uh, income and wealth uh, concentration and inequality over the past century, the uh, reduction in inequality that happened between 1910, 1920, and 1950, 1960, so in the first half of the 20th century, has a lot to do with very particular uh, historical circumstances, and in particular with the impact of uh, uh, the Great Depression, World War One, World War Two, which induced a completely change in policy with the rise of social and, and fiscal institutions that were largely uh, refused by the elite until... World War One, and which played a major role uh, in in the in the reduction of uh, of inequality. Then in the 50s, 60s. So to back up, we have there's sort of different things going on here, right? There's both the effect on capital and on wealth, and the effect on sort of incomes and productivity. And and labor and the formation of wages. So for instance, in the U.S., so the, the, the exact story is a bit different in every country. But for instance, in the U.S. during World War II, you have a big compression of wages, which has a lot to do with a particular collective bargaining uh, uh, institutions that is put in place at that time uh, with the, the National War Labor Board, uh, which in effect leads to a compression of the distribution. Also, the national federal minimum wage that is put in place in the 30s reaches pretty high level in the post-World War II period, in the 50s, 60s, uh, and, and, and this contributed also to the compression of, of inequality. And meanwhile, the Depression and World War II are sort of destroying wealth to some degree. To, to some extent. And, and, and so in some European countries, you have direct wealth destruction. In, in the US or in the UK, you don't have that much direct wealth destruction, but you have bankruptcies following um, uh, the Depression. And you have a very progressive uh, tax system. Uh, uh, in, in many ways, the US and Britain, to a lesser extent, invented very progressive taxation of income and inherited wealth. You know, if you take the U.S., on average, between 1930 and 1980, on average, the top marginal income tax rate was uh, 82%. So it was sometimes 91% under Roosevelt. It was sometimes 70%, like in the 1970s. On average, over this 50-year period, it was 82%. You don't have any country in Europe where you've had such high top income tax rate. Mm -hmm. Then after the Reagan years, the US moved to the other uh, opposite direction. You know, what's striking when you look at the comparative history of inequality 
is that it's it's not as if the same countries are always the most uh, unequal. You have some reversal over time. So the U.S. Uh, was more egalitarian than Europe uh, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And then in the late 20th century, it became uh, more, uh, more inegalitarian. So this thing changed over time because politics are important. And, and different political choices, different political history, different uh, policies and institutions can, 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 uh, can make a difference and, and explain why, starting in the 1980s, you have rising inequality, particularly in the US, uh, to a large extent because of change in, uh, in, in policies. Uh, this includes uh, the decline of progressive taxation, the decline of the relative value of the uh, minimum wage, um, uh, financial deregulation also has contributed particularly with very large uh, compensation and bonuses in the financial sector. So there's a whole set of policies that contribute to, to, to this. Globalization, uh, the competition with emerging countries uh, also plays a role, but I think it's important to realize that the uh, different uh, developed countries were able through different policies to sort of uh, uh, deal with globalization in, in different ways. So the rise in inequality has, has not been as strong uh, everywhere. Uh, it has been particularly strong in the, in the US. It has been much less strong in Sweden or Germany or Japan, in spite of the fact that you've also had globalization, technical change. So different institutions can make a difference. Another key point that receives a lot of attention and there seems to be maybe a good deal of misunderstanding about is the role of the rate of return on capital and the rate of productivity. Yes. So the, the rate of return to capital is how much on average does uh, capital bring in terms of, of income. So if on average you have an annual return of 4 or 5 percent. Now the growth rate of the economy has no reason to be equal to that. The growth rate of the economy depends on two things. First, the growth of population and then the growth of productivity, which depends on uh, investment in education, uh, new innovation, technical change. Now, in, in the very long run, uh, uh, you tend to observe that R, the rate of return, is higher than G. So this is pretty obvious if you look in the very long run of history, because during most of history, growth was close to zero. You know, until the Industrial Revolution, the growth rate was zero, and, and of course, the rate of return... Uh, to capital was not was not zero. Then typically, uh, in in uh, agrarian societies, it was uh, of the order of four or five percent per year. In a way, the, for a long time, this was the very foundation of society. This is what allowed a group of owners to live off their wealth uh, and to do other things in life than to care about their own survival. Now, one of the important findings of my book is that the modern industrial revolution and the modern productivity growth and innovation that we've had since the 19th century and that we still have today did not change this basic relationship between R and G as much as one might have expected. So, of course, there was a rise in growth rate, you know, from 0% to maybe 1%, 2% productivity growth rate in the very long run. But the rate of return to capital also increased with the new forms of manufacturing and industrial investment, maybe from 4 5% to 6 7%. So the gap between the two did not really change. Now, in itself, this gap is not necessarily a, a problem. You know, it could come with a perfectly egalitarian society. You know, imagine a society where... Uh, 
R is 5% and G, the growth rate is 1%. And everybody has an equal share in the stock markets through some gigantic pension fund. And everybody has an equal share in the housing stock. Everybody has a house. And then R bigger than G would just mean that every year, Uh, uh, you simply need to reinvest one-fifth of your capital income to ensure that your capital rises as fast as the size of the economy and you can consume the other four-fifths. So this in itself is certainly not a problem. The problem is that in practice, of course, uh, you, you, you have a lot of wealth inequality for all sorts of reasons. Uh, some people make very good investments, some people very bad investments, so not everybody gets the same rate of return. People have unequal labor incomes, people have uh, different numbers of children, different uh, life expectancy. So you, you have a lot of shocks to the wealth transmission process between families and a higher gap between R and G, between the rate of return and the growth rate, will tend to magnify uh, these shocks and to increase the... the The, the equilibrium level of inequality in the distribution of wealth and also to reduce tend to reduce mobility so this is not a problem in itself that uh, requires you know you don't want to lower the, the rate of return below the growth rate you know because then you would have very little incentives to accumulate but you need to have some tax system which uh, brings more mobility which allows people who start from the bottom to start accumulating wealth and enter the wealth distribution and you know you want to avoid excessive concentration at the top so if you don't have any force to increase uh, the mobility of the wealth distribution, then the, the historical evidence suggests that you, uh, wealth inequality tends to go toward levels that are uh, extremely uh, concentrated. Now, in the future, um, there are reasons to believe that uh, uh, first you, you have a population growth slowdown, which probably will, will go to, to very low levels uh, Uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, productivity growth in the long run is, is probably not higher than 1% or 2%. And maybe even this uh, is difficult to sustain if we, if we, if we don't have uh, new, uh, new forms of, uh, of energy and, and clean uh, growth. Um, and, and, and competition between countries to attract capital also tends to lead to a rise in the uh, net of tax rate of return to capital. So these forces can, can contribute to uh, rising wealth concentration in the future, together with the fact that the, uh, with financial deregulation, we probably have seen uh, an increase in the inequality of financial returns. So, you know, when you have an average rate of return of 3% or 4%, Not everybody, in fact, is getting this average rate of return. So if you, you know, there's evidence that if you have very large financial portfolio, you can access very sophisticated financial instrument and financial derivatives so that you get a higher return. Whereas if you have, uh, you know, $100,000 or $10,000, you know, the rate of return you will get if you go to your bank will not be very good. So this inequality in access to good financial returns Uh, uh, can also contribute to, to rising uh, concentration uh, of, of wealth in the future. A lot of people have taken issue with various parts of this. Some have suggested that rate of capital growth and economic growth is not as important as you think. There are some have said that factors like technology mechanization have not been accounted for. Have any of these made you stop and think or reevaluate what you wrote in the book? 
Well, all these discussions are very interesting. And, and look, the purpose of the book was, was to stimulate discussion about inequality. So, you know, I'm very uh, uh, glad to see that, uh, you, know, uh, the, the, you know, I have managed to succeed in this objective, you know, even more than what I could possibly expect. Now, if I was to rewrite the book today, uh, frankly, there's not much that I will change. You know, maybe the only change that I will make is that we actually have now new data on the evolution of uh, wealth inequality in the US uh, with a new study by Says and Zuckman uh, showing actually even more increase in wealth inequalities than what I actually report uh, in my book. But again, let me let me stress that the story about inequality that I am telling in the book is actually a complicated story because, you know, if it was really simple, if it was just R and G explain everything, you know, it would be a 10 page long book. And if, if it's a long book, it's because there are many different forces going on. You know, you have forces that can lead to a reduction of inequality, like the diffusion of education and under some circumstances, the technological change. And, you know, I believe in these positive forces. At the same time, you have uh, forces that push toward uh, a lot of uh, inequality, in particular if you have unequal access to education, if you have unequal uh, financial returns. I guess my, my real conclusion at the end of this book is uh, we need more transparency about income and wealth dynamics so that we better know how the different income groups and wealth groups benefit from growth year after year and so that we can adapt our policies, and in particular our tax system, to whatever uh, we see. I'd be very happy if natural market forces, competition, technical change, you know, were enough to take care of all the problems. But I think we need a plan B. You know, we, we need to have democratic institutions and financial transparencies uh, so that we can adapt our policies in case this uh, uh, optimistic uh, uh, scenario uh, does not happen. You know, I think it's a bit uh, of an illusion just to imagine that uh, natural market forces can take care of everything. I, I, I believe in market forces in private property, but I think we need strong democratic institutions to put these powerful uh, market forces uh, into the, the, the common interest. Something interesting is that you're not afraid to prescribe policy. Um, the accountability and also you make the case very strongly for a progressive tax system. I'm, you mentioned that you've been to so many countries talking about this. What's the reaction been like to, to that element and has it varied from place to place? I imagine it has. My, my main objective regarding the progressive taxation debate, you know, is to try to bring some historical evidence and to try to favor, you know, I would like it to be possible to have a quiet discussion about taxation, which is very difficult because people get excited very fast and they have very strong views. And, you know, that's fine. You know, this is also what got me interested in these issues is that uh, everybody has strong views about inequality and taxation. I simply want to make the case that during very long period of time, a country like the U.S., had a very progressive income tax system, a very progressive tax system on wealth, on inherited wealth, with very top tax rate of 70-80%. And, uh, you know, apparently this did not destroy American capitalism. Uh, between 1930-1980, top income tax rate on average was 82%. And if anything, productivity growth in the 50s, 60s, 70s was higher than what it has been in recent decades. So I think at some point it's important to look at numbers. 
you know, the Reagan revolution was 30 years ago. Let's see exactly how much it has brought to the average Americans. Uh, if you look at the gross performance of the US economy uh, between 1980-2010, you have a per capita GDP growth rate of 1.5-1.6%. Uh, this is not particularly good, and two-thirds of this growth has gone to the top 10% and most of it to the top 1%. Is it a good deal for the middle class and for the bottom groups in the population? You know, I, I think it's possible to just to ask the question. And then, you know, different countries will, will find their own ways. You're obviously a big fan of looking at the numbers, as you, as you said. But I remember there's also a moment in your book, this line got a lot of play in the press, childish passion for mathematics, right? You, you deride some economists for having a childish passion for mathematics. And you kind of elaborate that there's this tendency to use math as an easy way of acquiring the appearance of scientificity without having to answer the far more complex questions posed by the world we live in. As you may have seen, the University of Chicago takes a lot of pride in our sort of quantitative approach, our evidence-based approach to things. So what kind of, what kind of work are you criticizing specifically with this idea? Oh, I think... You know, economists, generally speaking, uh, spend too much time doing uh, complicated uh, mathematical models uh, uh, just to impress other disciplines. And, you know, I'm not sure this is impressing anyone. I, I think, you know, I have nothing against uh, theoretical models. I think we, but we need to have simple models. You know, simple models to explain a lot of empirical evidence are fine. But very often, uh, economics use very complicated models to explain very little evidence or sometimes no evidence at all. You know, you can have a career in economics just uh, proving uh, uh, theorems. And believe me, this is still a big part of the of the, of the profession. So I think we should pay more attention uh, to data collection. Some do that, of course, but, but by and large, uh, uh, I think the, the, the profession uh, is, uh, is losing too much energy uh, uh, in, uh, in technicalities. Uh, typically, the kind of basic uh, historical data collection that we have done in this project, I think this was not done before because of, uh, uh, yes, two sharp boundaries between economics and history and other social sciences. So I think more uh, dialogue with other disciplines is very important. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, and also, economists need to be... Uh, you know, more modest about what they can bring to this discussion as compared to what sociologists, historians can bring. You know, I think the, as social scientists, the most we can bring is first that, you know, we are paid to collect uh, data carefully, try to put together the different possible explanations, uh, uh, examine them carefully, and, and then, you know, normal citizen and, and, and can... can, can uh, have a more informed view of the, the policy issues. But uh, too, too often, we, we, we spend time in, uh, in, uh, in technicalities, uh, the deriving uh, theorems more than, than we are uh, uh, collecting data. Let's, let's move into further policy implications that are happening right now. Just this week, you came out with a new study looking at the idea of inequality in sort of a new way as it relates to the carbon footprint. Um, do you want to just walk me through that? Right, so the inequality in terms of exposure to uh, the degradation of our natural environment is, is, uh, is a serious issue and will become the most serious issue in the future. So as you know, there are countries in the world, particularly in the southern hemisphere, that, that are going to suffer from, from uh, uh, global uh, uh, climate change much more than countries in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and what I do in this 
uh, recent research with uh, with Luca Chancel is that we for the first time instead of just comparing uh, countries we are trying to look at individuals and try to measure the evolution of the world uh, distribution of uh, carbon emission between individuals so uh, uh, for instance you know if you take if you take the top 1% uh, carbon emitters in the world they themselves alone they uh, uh, emit uh, uh, between 15 and 20% of the uh, of the total carbon emission in the world and so the bottom half of the world population these are typically people in the south who are going to suffer from the carbon emission of these top 1% and top 10% emitters now where are they well you know it's interesting you know the top 1% emitters so these are 70 million people out of of 7 billion uh, population in the world 57% uh, are uh, in north america according to our estimates, as compared to 5% in China and um, uh, a bit more than 15% in Europe, uh, you know, 6% in the Middle East. So, you know, we have numbers for the world distribution, which I think are important because, you know, when you have very large negative externality that are imposed on other countries, you know, at some point, Uh, you know, it will make sense uh, to ask for uh, for uh, for compensation. And in particular, today is a big issue with the climate conference uh, that's going to take place in a, in a few weeks uh, in Paris. Is how do you finance adaptation? So again, here one thing that really comes through in in this conversation and in the book, you're not afraid to tell people, policymakers, that kind of thing, what needs to be done. Um, whereas a lot of other economists are not that way. What's your response to social scientists who you know, are a little more hesitant to step on the toes of policymakers? Well, I, you know, I think we all have to take position. But again, uh, my view, you know, it's not that I know for sure, you know, what should be done uh, uh, here. You know, I think equity in particular, if we, if we think of uh, global equity and international equity about who has to finance say, uh, adaptation to climate change, that's a very complicated notion. And nobody is going to come with a, you know, a mathematical formula or a perfect solution. You know, this is the way we should divide the, the burden. But at least I think our, our work as a social scientist and a citizen is to propose, uh, you know, more uh, information about this so that not only policymakers, but the entire uh, society and, and civil societies and normal citizens can, can make their mind about this issue. Uh, I think it's not, uh, um, you know, policymakers, politicians, very often they, they just do what they feel the dominant public opinion is asking them to, to do. So for me, what's more important is to try to influence the formation of this public opinion by uh, writing books, uh, writing articles, and, and trying to contribute just to a more informed democratic discussion. When the average reader, whoever that may be, comes up to you at a book signing, you know, what do they want to ask you? What do they want to tell you? Well, what, what makes me really glad when I meet uh, readers, uh, you know, all over the world is that I meet lots of people who tell me that, uh, you know, they usually don't read that kind of big academic books with footnotes. They don't read economics books. They don't read necessary big history book. And, and when they tell me that they, you know, they understand everything, they, they read it until the end or, you know, at least they are well into the book and they are continuing. You know, I, I meet lots of people, you know, everywhere, you know, in... 
And so that's, uh, for me, this is the most important. I think, you know, there is a strong demand for some form of democratization of economic knowledge. And I think this can contribute to a, a democratization of, of our economic structure as well. So, you know, I believe in the power of books and ideas, but, you know, of course, it's only a book and then you need lots of books and lots of people to transform book into uh, action. But I can see that there is a strong demand for, you know, being involved and not letting a small group of, uh, of uh, self-proclaimed uh, experts, you know, monopolize uh, uh, discussion about uh, economic and financial issues. Because in the end, these are not technical issues for experts and policy makers. I think these are uh, issues for, uh, for every one of us. That's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith. And please join us next time for a very special discussion with Anne Richard, a Chicago Harris alumna who's now serving as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration. We'll hear how she thinks the U.S. should handle the worst refugee crisis since World War II.